Pastor Corey here with Heights Church. Thank you for listening to our sermon podcast. If you would like more information about Heights Church, simply go to weareheights.org or follow us on our Facebook page. If you're looking to get plugged into a church, feel free to reach out to us via our website by simply clicking contact, and we will help you find a similar church in your area. Hope the podcast serves you well, and thanks for tuning in. Good morning. My name's David. For those of you who don't know me, one of the pastors here, I get the privilege to preach to you today from Hebrews 7, the second half of this. I preached the first half last week, if you're with us or watched online, and it's, it's weighty. Like, it really is. It's a very, like, deep text with a lot of theological stuff going on. So we're going to take a second, we're going to pray, and we're just going to get focused in. And I really, I'm hoping like, that God just really reveals some cool things to you today through this text and by using me. Let me pray for us. God, Thank you for your word, that you had such foresight and idea to just to lay out who you are through a book that has just sustained its truth and its accuracy for now thousands upon thousands of years. And so, God, we thank you for that. Now, Lord, I ask that you'll use me as your mouthpiece to speak your word to your people. God, that you will just open their ears and their minds, and God, that they will hear something today that will just... Spirit will reveal something new to them. If they're here today and they don't know you as their Lord and Savior, as we've been talking about, that you have to be both, Jesus, that you are Lord and Savior. God, I pray that you will just work in their lives and draw them into a relationship with you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So like I said, we're in the second half of Hebrews 7. And if you were with us last week, there was a, a lot there I had to unpack to make you understand, to help you understand why Jesus is better than the Levitical priesthood. I mean, the, the text is telling us that, but none of us are Jewish, like I said last week. And so that this idea that something's better than the Levitical priesthood, it's like, okay, so what? I don't understand because I, I'm not Jewish. I didn't grow up Jewish. And even if you grew up Jewish today, they still don't now have priests. Like that's ceased. It's gone. And I'll explain that more in depth in a little bit, but they don't make sacrifices anymore. And so you would have had to grow up thousands of years ago in a Jewish culture to even understand why something being better than the Levitical priesthood is so important. And so I want us to, like, to grasp that today, that Jesus is better than all of that. He's better than all the patriarchs, all that. That's what we unpacked last week, because they had a reference for that. And when they got that, then they're going to be able to better understand what we're getting ready to dig into, that what Jesus does since he's better. Because that's it. Like This author, he's stressing to these people, there's not a better way of life, there's not a better path, there's not a better person to help you navigate the life that you're in right now, or the eternal life that one day we will all be in, rather with God or not with God. There's no better person, no better thing, it's Jesus. That's it. That's who it is. And they needed the Old Testament to help them grasp that. They needed that. And we do too. It, it, it does, it's not like it's of waste by no means. Like it shows us how much better Jesus is. But for us, like we, we will take it in in a different way because ultimately we're being told the same thing. But yet it's different because we're not Jewish. But he's telling these people, everything you've staked your life on, your identity and who you are, your Jewish descent, your religion, it was all orchestrated to point you to Jesus. And so then I want you today, as you sit here, you think, like, 
you're not of Jewish descent, but your identity, you, the way you've been raised, the, 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 the home you live in, the job that you have, God has been orchestrating all of that to point you to Jesus. He's not using it for nothing. Like it's, it's there, it has a purpose to it. You're not even here today by mistake. Like you're here because God orchestrated for you to be here to hear how much better his son is as king and high priest, as Lord and Savior. I really, today, and then I hope that you grasp that there's nothing better in this world than Jesus and what he does. And what he does is he mediates for us. He comes before God, the Father, sitting at the right hand of, of God, and, and he mediates. He intercedes for us. He's praying for us. He's upholding our salvation, and that's what we're going to unpack today. And we have to grasp who he is and who we are in light of all of that. And so our big idea then for today is this. We abide in Jesus Christ as he perfectly mediates for us as the better high priest. So if we're a believer, we're abiding in him. We are connected to him. Like the, well, we're going to read a text here in just a second from John 15. Like a vine is connected to the branches. Like that's how we are to Jesus if we are born again. And because of that, then he's abiding or med, med, mediating for us. I got it out. There we go. I got it out. He, he's mediating for us. And this is what John 15 says. This is what Jesus is telling us. And this is really important for us to build to the text that we're in today. He says, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. So Jesus is saying, like, you cannot produce good, godly, spiritual fruit unless you're abiding in me. That is an impossibility. You can't do it. You might think you do good things, but you can't. You can only do good through me. So don't miss that. He says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered and thrown into a fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, don't miss this last part, and so prove to be my disciples. So prove to be my disciples. So as we're abiding in Jesus, here's what we see. There's a connection to God as we're abiding in him, as the vine and the branches. We're able to bear fruit, spiritual good fruit. Then we are given eternal salvation because the, the ones that are not abiding in Jesus, they're, they're thrown away and burned, it says. And then we have this freedom to ask for anything that we wish. But there's more. Don't take that just as like you can go wish for a new car. He's saying in, in line with God's will. But here's the last part that I really want you to see is we're going to build off of this. It's a, there's, a, there's a visible proof then as we bear this fruit that we are a disciple of Jesus and that glorifies God the Father. Like, that's really, really key for us because so often we want to think that our good deeds is what would make us abide in Jesus, and it's, it's, that's not it. It's the abiding in Jesus that produces the fruit. And so today, I want you to see this as our first point. Only Jesus can accomplish what is necessary for eternal salvation. When we look at verse 11, it says, Now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another high priest or another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than one named after the order of Aaron? That is a very deep theological way of saying this. If you could be good enough to go to heaven 
Jesus did not need to come. That's it. That's it. In a nutshell, that's what he's saying. Because he's saying there was another high priest who came after the order of Melchizedek, which we unpacked last week. That's the, the priesthood that Jesus falls in line of. <laughs> Melchizedek and Jesus, that's it. And Jesus is better than, than Melchizedek. Like Melchizedek was just pointing us to Jesus. So the other priest, every other high priest that ever came, every Jewish priest in the Old Testament came from the line of Aaron, the Levitical priesthood. And so he's saying, if you could have done what the law laid out, Jesus didn't need to come. And so when we read John 15, and he says that our fruit is then proof that we are his disciples and that glorifies God, he's saying it's not the reverse. Like we so often will tell you, that our identity comes first and our behaviors then flow from that. Our behaviors do not dictate our identity. Our identity is found in Christ, and then through that, then, we produce good fruits. We don't have to work to try to obtain that identity in Christ, to abide in him. We can't, or it's impossible. That's what the text is telling us. If perfect, perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, there was no need. Think about this. There's 613 laws in that Levitical priesthood that God laid out. Like he gives all these laws through those people and we can't fulfill them. None of us in this room are. I guarantee all of us, just in our clothing that we're wearing right now, it is not made of one solid type of fabric. You'd be against God's law. Like you can't wear polyester mixed with cotton. I don't know how shirts are made, but you get my point, right? Like if you've got a height shirt on, it's probably a tri-blend. That means it's made of three fabrics. You're really screwed up right now, right? You're like, oh, gosh, dang, I didn't realize that. I got to go get a new shirt. All of them are mixed fabrics, so you're done. We, we're breaking all the Old Testament laws here with our T-shirts. Whatever, you guys don't care about jokes today. That's fine. I didn't even have that in there, and it wasn't in the first service. It's all right. But when we look at this, when we look at verse 11, I, I really want you to understand, like, there's a problem that we have of really grasping, and it's this. There's three things, I think, that, we, that cause us to have trouble with that. Not, in not the theological sense, just in our mindsets. Perfection is the standard. That's the standard to go to heaven. Perfection. The only way that's attainable is through Jesus Christ because he imputes his righteousness to us. And so when God the Father sees us, he sees us as holy and righteous and perfect because he sees us the same as he sees his son. But yet our idea of perfect, I think, is flawed and, and really just we have a, a, a skewed version of that. And here's why. How many of you, maybe you're going to go outside or you were outside yesterday and you went to the pool and you said, man, yesterday was a perfect day at the pool. It was great. You know, sun was out, no clouds is awesome. But yet, was it perfect? Because at one point, you might be like, man, that breeze made me chilly. Or the reality is that the sun just was flat smoking you through the ozone, and now you're sunburnt, or, I don't know, one day closer to having skin cancer. I know that sounds harsh, but, like, that's the reality. Like, we live in a broken world with a broken ozone layer and all this stuff. And I'm not talking, like, in a green sense. I'm talking just the reality of it, that our world's messed up. It's, it's been affected by sin. So to say it was a perfect day, it's not quite true. Or maybe you've met someone. Or when you did meet someone, you're like, this person's perfect for me. Well, if you've been married for any point in time at all, you're like, no, they're not. They're not perfect for me. <laughs> if they do that one more time, I'm going to go crazy. Like, they're not perfect for me. Or maybe you think of, like, sports. That's how my brain goes. Like, a perfect game in baseball. It's not a real common thing that happens. It happens, at, you know, a little, maybe five, six times a year or so in a baseball season. 
a perfect game in baseball is that they didn't allow any runs and there was no walks. No one got on base. But really, the pitcher doesn't have to throw a perfect game because he can throw as many balls as he wants as long as he doesn't walk anyone. So he wasn't perfect. We've taken the word perfect and we've limited it to what our brains can just conceive and understand. And the reality is only Jesus is perfect. And so if perfect could be attained, but our version of perfect is broken, we have to look to him to understand what that means. So we then have to look and understand that if that's the real level of perfect, we can't obtain that. It's impossible. And the reason why is because we've all sinned. Like that is just the reality of the life that we live is that we've fallen into sin because we are born into sin. And 1 John 1.8 tells us, if you say that you're without sin, you're a liar. And so then, essentially, if you say you're without sin, you're just sinning more because you're trying to say that you're without sin. Now you've lied. And then the last thing that we have to understand of why this is so important that if perfection had been attainable through Levitical priesthood or the law, then we'd be okay, but we, we can't because we're going to mess it up. And then it's this, is that God will not be in the presence of sin. He's holy. Like, he is holy. Like, we, we, I don't know that we can again, the framework for this. I don't know that we're ever going to have it until we're before him in eternity, but with him being holy and us being sinful, we can't be in his presence. And so he's saying, if this was attainable, then Jesus didn't need to come, but it's not attainable. You need Jesus to come and to do what only Jesus can do, and that's perfectly fulfilled, the law, all the prophecies, everything. That's what he did, but then I've had too many conversations throughout my life to go something like this. I'm a good person, so I'll go to heaven. Or, if your God is so loving, then how could he send me to hell? Well, they're missing that he's also just. And then I hear people all the time say, I hope my good will outweigh the bad. Well, it can't. It doesn't matter. Even if your good did outweigh the bad, there's still some bad. You're no longer perfect. And then the reality of that is, apart from Jesus, we're, we're really in a mess. And that's what, the te- that's what this text is telling these people. Is like, if you think that you're going to go back to something better, you're not. You can't. There's nothing better because there's nothing else that is perfect. It's only Jesus. And that's a glorious news for us that there wasn't a need for another high priest because he did it. Like, if, if he wouldn't have came, then we would still just be making sacrifice after sacrifice, hoping to obtain what we really could never obtain. And yet Jesus, in his sinlessness, offered himself up as the atoning sacrifice for the sins of the world. And then in that, what we see is that only Jesus was qualified to accomplish what the prophets, priests, and kings pointed to. Like only Jesus was qualified to do this. Only him. No one else was perfect. All those patriarchs of the faith, all the prophets who were telling of Jesus coming and and warning God's people of different things and all the kings that would come and, and reign over God's people, they were only pointing to him. They couldn't do what Jesus was going to do. But what the cool thing is, is this, is that the work of Jesus is threefold. He holds all three offices of prophet, priest, and king. Like there's no type of perfection found anywhere in the Bible except in Christ who can do that. There was no priest who could be king. There was no king who could be priest or priest that could be. It wasn't working. And you didn't see any prophet running around with those jobs either. Like they had to stay within the function that they were given. You're a priest. You do this. You're a king. You do this. And what's really neat is as we read this text, 
In verse 14, it says, For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. That's a big deal. Because from Judah is where the kings came. The tribe of Judah produced kings. That's where David came from. And from that, from that lineage then, that's where the king come from. Joseph, being Jesus' earthly father, that's where he is in line with that lineage. But then what we see is Jesus as priest, not from the tribe of Levi, not through the Levitical order of priest, but from the line of Melchizedek, which makes him priest and king. And then as a prophet, he's fulfilled all prophecy. He's done all that's needed to do. He's perfectly upholding all three of these positions. And so then when you start to go back to the first point and think, I know you're saying that perfection isn't attainable, but I'm pretty good. I'm a pretty good person. Can you perfectly fulfill prophet, priest, and king? You can't. Not in this context. But here's the really cool thing. If you have been saved by God, he has taken you and plucked you out of your death and sin and made you a son or daughter of the Most High God, guess what? The, te- the, the Bible tells us in Second Peter, you're a royal priesthood. And our job as believers, as the church, is to go and to take the gospel to all those who do not yet know it. So that is, you are now proclaiming truth to God. That is work of a prophet, essentially. So now you are fulfilling those roles, but through Christ. This is an amazing thing that we're given, an amazing gift that we're giving. And if we miss it, if we miss it, I think that we will go through the Christian life not truly appreciating who God is and living it out in a way that is just radically going to change not only ourselves, but our families and our communities and essentially to the ends of the earth. You don't know what God could call you to do if you embrace like, man, I'm not good enough to obtain this, but he was. And then through that and everything that he fulfilled, he makes me the same thing because of who he is. And I'm abiding in him and I can produce good fruits now and glorify God the Father through it. That's, that's what he's trying to tell these people. To, don't bail on this. Jesus is more qualified than everyone that you're learning to look to. He's telling them that there was so much better there. That it's evident that our Lord was descended from Judah and that he was in, in, not in connection with the tribe of Moses and said nothing, that, who said nothing about priests coming from Judah. And he goes on and just tells them that, that Jesus, who became a priest, is not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. Like That's why he's qualified, because he's resurrected. He's conquered death and sin, and we don't want to miss that. Because like, if we miss that, that he's qualified to do everything that he's doing, then we won't appreciate what he's doing right now for us in heaven. He's mediating for us before the Father. He's interceding. He's praying for us. And those things matter. Like if he stops doing those, which he won't, we're done. Like I don't know exactly what would happen if like we just cease to exist or if it'd just be like we're done when this is all over with. We're going to be separated from God for eternity in hell. But the text is telling us that he won't do that. He is a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And yet scripture sets this up perfectly because I'm telling you, essentially, he's prophet, priest, and king, and, and no one else can do that, right? Like, no one else can do that. But I want to show you from other texts how the Bible all connects together. Zechariah 6, verse 13. It's going to be on the screen. I'm going to read it to you. It says, Yes, he will build the Lord's temple. He will bear royal splendor and will sit on his throne and rule. 
There will be a priest on his throne, and there will be peaceful counsel between the two of them. Hear that. He's talking about the, the, the throne of David, that there will be a priest one day to sit on it, that it was unheard of. But yet, yet through Jesus coming through the lineage of David, the tribe of Judah, it's obtainable. That's what this text is telling us. They would have grasped it immediately. They're like, whoa, you t- that's him? That's who they, the, that they were talking about in Zechariah? Like, they would have got it. But I want to show you more. I want you to see this. this is, and this is so cool to me because I think, you know, God does these things. And we read these stories in the Bible throughout history. And we think, man, that was really neat. wonder why God put that in the Bible. Like, why did I need to know that? And this is just really revealed to me. I mean, I've known the story, like, for a long time in my life. But Saul was the first king of Israel. All right? And so Saul, not the best king, kind of really went off the rails there, and God does what he has to do, and he removes him. And what got him there was this, is that Saul, as king, is getting ready to go fight the Philistines. And he's waiting on Samuel, who was the high priest at the time. Well, Samuel doesn't get there when he's supposed to. He's running late. That would have drove me nuts. So if I was, like, king back then and not have been, like, worse where Samuel, like, I'm about to have to make the sacrifice myself. And that's what he was wanting to do. He wanted to make a sacrifice before he went to war so that God would bless them, they'd be cleansed of their sins, and they could go in the fight. So Samuel doesn't show up, so Saul makes the sacrifice himself. This is not good. This shouldn't happen. Like, he's king. He's not a priest. He can't do this. And so when Samuel finally does show up, he looks at him, he goes, what have you done? Like, you can't do that. And in that instance, right there, that moment, His anointing as king is removed, and God places his anointing on king, well, not at the time, David, who's just a shepherd, a boy, a teenager, who took years then for him to fully step into being king, but yet what you see is a king trying to do the role of a priest, and I wonder, I don't know this, there's no text that can point to it, did did God give us that story, that instance, that he let Saul sin in that way just to say, look, You see what these earthly kings couldn't do? My son can do it perfectly. He could perfectly as king sacrifice for the sins of the world by sacrificing himself and conquering death and sin. Jesus, the only true king, can make a perfect sacrifice. That's who he is. So not only is he qualified as king, he's our high priest doing all this for us, like verses 17 and 21, it's, it's telling us that it's telling us that he is a king forever. He is a king forever in the order of Melchizedek. And in verse 21, it's, it's just going on and telling us that the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. He's king and priest. He's Lord and Savior. And man, if you don't see this already, that you're just not qualified as he is to do what's necessary for your salvation, then I don't know what else I could tell you, but just to know that only such a qualified God could then qualify our Lord and Savior Jesus. Like God the Father, who's qualified to decide. He's the creator of all things. He's holding all things together. He's saying, I'm going to qualify my son. He literally makes an oath to that. Like he says that he will be a king forever. He will be a priest forever. He does not change that. There's nothing there that could ever shift that away from being a true statement. And so now what we see is this, is that Jesus has given us a better hope and a better covenant that allows us to draw near to the most high God. Now this is 
A very big deal because we all, if you don't know this, you do want this, is to draw near to God. You want to be near your creator. You want to be in relation with him. It's an innate thing inside of us that we want to be with God. Like You may think, oh, I don't care. But essentially you do because you don't want the alternative to be away from God for all of eternity. There would be nothing good because everything you're experiencing in this life is either by God's just grace to you as a believer or his common grace that you can take your next breath. And so we want to be in relationship with him, and, and we try so hard. Yet we've already covered that you can't obtain that by how hard you try. And so we're given this better hope, the text says, that we're giving something different than what we could ever try to obtain on our own. He goes and he says there, and make sure I find the, the right verse. My bad. My brain is getting a little foggy here for a second. That he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. He is doing that. He is the guarantor of that covenant, this new covenant that, that brings us into him. There's all these other covenants that we see in the Bible. Like throughout the Old Testament, God's making covenants to Noah and to Moses and to Abraham and David and all those covenants. They're good, but the, pur- the purpose of them was to point, them, point, point us to Jesus. And what Jesus does then is when he comes in, he, he just captures that truth, and he says, yeah, all those things were good, but let me give you who I am, and I'm, I'm bringing you a better covenant, better promises, better sacrifices for your sins, and then ev- eventually it even says in Hebrews, a better country, a heavenly country. Like for us, like we, we think, well, what, is that, what does that mean for us? Was well, that we're going to dwell with him forever in a heavenly place. The law could not provide that. The law could not do that for us. It was impossible for the law to provide that. It says in verse 18, for on one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. Do you hear that? A better hope. Only Jesus can provide you that only hope. Like, I think about like, what it would be to try to live by the law, and it would just cause just such tension in your life. Like There was a guy who tried to do it. He tried to live out all the Levitical laws. It was like, he had to carry a donut around with him to sit down on a couch. Literally, he had to, because he didn't know if someone else had made that couch unclean or that chair unclean, and so he couldn't touch it. Like, you'd be, you'd be unclean. You'd have broken the law. And now you'd be a sinner. And, like, that's how he had to, like, go and sit on a blow-up donut just so he could do that. But then what this text is making you think is, okay, is the law bad then? And Paul, he wants us to know, no, not at all. It says in Romans 7, what then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would have not have known sin. So he's saying, if I wouldn't have known what the law was, I wouldn't have known that I was sinning. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive, and I died, making us dead in our sins, separating us from God. There's no hope in that. But this better covenant that Jesus is saying, I've taken care, I've fulfilled all those things, you don't have to do anything to obtain this anymore. I've taken care of it. That's the better covenant. That's a better hope. He's done all that we need to do. And we think, okay, this covenant, that sounds great. But what does that really mean? 
Well, it's meaning he won't break it. We have no concept for that either. We have no concept for perfect because we can't see it played out. And we honestly have no concept for covenant. And here's why. How many of you have kept every promise you've ever made? Like, we just don't. Like, we hear our kids, like, tell us, like, I promise I'll never do it again. And like, 10 minutes later, they're doing it again. The divorce rate between Christians and non-believers is the same. Like, we don't even take a marriage covenant serious, for better or worse. No, we'll bail as soon as worse happens. You know, we can't work through anything, so we, just, we walk out. We don't keep the covenant. We don't uphold what we say we'll do. Our word becomes kind of worthless because we don't understand what it means to commit. And Jesus is the only one who's qualified to give us a better hope through this better covenant because he won't break it. He won't falter. He won't maybe think, ah, I don't know if I want to keep doing this. This is too hard. I don't like this job anymore. I wish I'd have never made this covenant with him. He won't do that. We will. We'll, we'll fall away as soon as something gets difficult. We're like, I don't know, I'm not sure about this anymore. I'm going to walk away. But yet he gives us a better hope. So when we then abide in him, what happens is in this better hope is that the father sees us as he sees his son washed clean by the blood of Jesus, made blameless, holy, and righteous. All the things that Jesus is here in this text, it tells us that. It tells us exactly who he is, that no one else is like him. And we can't miss that. Like, we cannot miss who it is that Jesus is, because it says, for it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners. That's that being holy. He's not, he's not in the presence of sinners. Exalted above the heavens. He has no need like high priest to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins, then for the, those of the people. Because he did it once and for all when he offered up himself. And that's that better covenant. That's that better hope. You don't have to keep striving for it. He's already taking care of it. I've been to Indonesia three different times. Twice to the island of Java, and then once to the island of Bali. Indonesia is the largest Muslim country in the world, but Hindu is the primary religion on the island of Bali. And here's what I've noticed as I go and you try to witness to these, these folks and share the gospel with them is you ask Muslims, like, hey, what, what's your plan? Like, how do you obtain going to heaven, going, salvation, forgiveness of your sins, however you want to phrase it? And the common answer is over and over again by doing five things. They're going to give alms. They're going to, which is like just giving money to their church, like tithing in a sense. They're going to do good deeds and benevolence to people and help out lesser people. They're going to do their prayers, and that's a very designated time where you hear the call of prayer, and so they have to stop, and they have to face towards Mecca, and they need to pray. And then they're going to attend their religious services, and then they're going to, if they could, which many can't, especially in Indonesia, make a trip to Mecca one day. And then I was like, oh, so if you do all those things, then you'll be saved. You'll, your, your sins are forgiven. Well, no, I don't know. Maybe. I'm like, well, what do you mean, maybe? Well, I don't know. God, only God knows that. And I said, well, then what happens if, you, if not? Well, then maybe I'll spend like, some time like, in hell, and they'll, they'll burn off. And I'm like, yeah, well, how long? Well, I don't know. I'm like, there's no hope in that. And I would share with them then how I have hope. But then as I would talk to Hindus, it got even weirder because at least the Muslims had like a structured framework to work within. Hindus did not. How will you get your sins forgiven? Well, 
I don't know. This one guy, we're sitting on his patio, hanging out, me and Jeff. He told us that, you know, I employ people through my tile company. I'm good to them. I'm a good boss. And I, I think I do enough good that it outweigh my bad. And I would try to share with him that there's no hope in that. He didn't want to hear it. I, I sat on the porch of a Hindu priest, and he shared with me that one of his ways of trying to get his sins forgiven is that he makes sacrifices by sacrificing puppies. And it's messed up, right? Like you're th- and there was a dog sitting at my feet when he said that. I was like, you, not this one, right? And he's like, no, not that one. He, it wasn't the right color. So there's like a color of a dog that you have to have. Like, this is insane. There's no hope in those. Jesus is the only thing that can provide real hope. And here's what's messed up. I want to know, like, what are Jewish people doing today then? Like, we have this text that's telling us to these people who came from a Jewish background who were then Christians that Jesus has taken care of everything that they could ever want. So, like, what are they doing today? They have not been making sacrifices on any regular basis since 70 AD. Their temple was destroyed. It's gone. And they have no designated spot that God has said, you can go and make sacrifices at. There's no more priest. There's rabbis, but there's no more priest. There's only, out of the 12 tribes of Israel, two and a half tribes that even exist today in our current world. You have the tribe of Benjamin, the tribe of Judah, which is where Jesus came from, and then there's about 6 to 8% of the tribe of Levi that people could trace themselves back to. Out of all the Jewish people living in the world today, none of them are taking up the priesthood, None of them are doing sacrifices, and so I kept reading. I go, how do they think that they're getting their sins forgiven then? It was almost identical to what Muslims say. Almost identical. I was like, what in the world? They, they, t- they take one verse about how God, like by praying to God, it could atone for your sins, and they've taken it so out of context, and that's where they've placed their hope is they can do benevolence, and they can pray, and they can follow just after God and do good and that their sins would be atoned for through that. There's no hope in that. It's empty. It's empty. And I wonder if the reason why the temple's never been rebuilt in almost 2,000 years is not because of political upheaval in the Middle East, but because God said, you're not going to rebuild a temple. You are the temple. And until you're willing to forsake everything that you knew and put your trust in my son, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit comes inside of you and he dwells in you and you are a living temple of God. I'm not letting you rebuild that temple because I don't need to preside in there. I'm gone out of that. I'm everywhere. He always was, but he's wanting them to see that. And I wonder if the reason there's not been another priest to come up after the Levitical priesthood is because he said, you're not going to do that either. I've taken care of that. I sent my son Jesus and he's fulfilled it all. And he's after the order of Melchizedek. So we're not doing any more of these Levitical priests. You're not doing that. God's going to work out something miraculous with his people. Like, that's in the text. Like, or not in this text, but it's in the Bible. Like, it's, it's going to happen. I don't know what that's all going to look like. But right now, he's not going to let them do what they used to do. And there's hope for us then in that. And you think, well, that sounds weird. Why would I have hope in that? Because are you sitting here today and you're stressed? You're anxious all the time? Like, you're, you're worried about what other people think about you? You're always trying to just do a little bit more? You don't have to. There's a better covenant, a better hope. You don't have to try to keep making yourself better, a better version of you. A better version of you, a better version of me is still really messed up. And yet Jesus is sanctifying us. He's giving us something so much greater. And then as he does that, he secures it. 
He doesn't just save you and leaves you. Only Jesus can secure our salvation for eternity. That's what he does. In this text, we see it in verse 16. He goes and says, Who has become a priest, not on the basis of legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life? He does not stop. He keeps going. And it, it, it keeps going in there in verse 26 that for if it, it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, he's, he's breaking this down. And he's telling us that he's done all that's needed to do there in verse 26 and verse 27, that he's done it once and for all. That the law, it says in verse 28, appoints men in their weakness as high priests. But the word of the oath, this is this oath that God has given to the Son, which came later than law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. He doesn't stop, guys. He's securing your salvation. He is holding it all together as he holds the world together. He is holding your salvation together. He's conquered death and sin. Verse 23, for the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in the office, but he upholds his priesthood permanently, forever. That's it. Like, I need you to understand that and grasp it because what happens is a lot of us, we get saved and you think, now I need to do my part. No, there's no part for you to do. Your behavior should then obviously produce fruit, as I shared with you earlier, but it's not basis to maintain your salvation. He's maintaining it. He's holding it together. He's done all that needs to happen. And he's doing that by interceding for us, going before the Father. He's praying, perfectly praying, and upholding all of it. And it's not because God the Father is like some grouchy old God who hates us and he wants, he's like just wishing for a second that Jesus would stop interceding for us so he could like just strike us down. Not by any means. Like the Bible tells us that while we were still sinners, God loved us and that he sent his son Jesus to die for us. So in perfect unity as the Trinitarian God, they work together in this. This was not a Jesus like, I'm going to go save them so you don't kill them all. God sent his son to die in our place and then they send the spirit to come and to dwell and to reveal things to us. He, he upholds us. In John 6, he, he tells us about that and we're gonna have it on the screen. I wanna read this to you. And Jesus said to them, he's talking to his followers, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall, not, shall never thirst. But I said to you, that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. You hear that? He's never gonna cast you out if you've came to him. And the Father is the one who gives him those who come to him. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. So it was the Father's will to send his son. Like hear that, know that. Like this is, he's not mediating for us because God is mean and wants to strike us. I, I want you to, to get that in your, in your hearts, and your brains. Like he loves us deeply. So he's doing the will of the Father. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me. He, God the Father doesn't want anyone that, we, that he's been given, Jesus has been given to go away. For this is the will of the Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Jesus is interceding for us. He's praying for us. He's doing what only he can do. That's it. And these truths about Jesus then today should just spur you to worship him, not just here on a Sunday morning, but in your daily lives and all, because here's what God the Father is saying to you. Draw near to me. 
That's what it says in the text, that we can draw near to him through Jesus. He's saying, draw near to me. Confess your sins. Trust and praise me. I won't cast you off. I love you. I want to bring you in. I want you to feel comforted. I want you to have hope. I want you to know there's something better than what you've been searching for, and it's found in me and my son. And in my son, you're now my beloved son or daughter. He's saying that to you. He's inviting you in. So I want to ask you to stand today. We're going to take communion. We're going to sing again. We're going to worship him. And I said last week, the response for the believer and the non-believer is the same. And it's, it's the same today, again. And it's this, will you draw near to God today? Maybe for the first time ever in your life or maybe for the 20th or 30th, 50th time. Will you draw near to God and will you say, God, help me to believe that you're really better, Jesus. Help me to understand that you've done all that is necessary. And every time that I start to drift away and I think that something else is better than you, when something else can accomplish what only you can obtain, God, remind me of your goodness. Remind me of your holiness so that I would turn and to worship you and to turn away from these useless things that are gonna perish. So let me pray for us. And then I just I ask that will you take in just a moment and consider what he has done for you as you come and you take communion and just rejoice in this new covenant that we have. Let me pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for how you've loved us so much and that you've provided a hope so that, Lord, we're not just toiling away all of our days of this life trying to fulfill something that we can never fulfill, but in you and only in you can we find a better hope and that you've obtained what we could never obtain, which is salvation and forgiveness of our sins. And so, God, for those of us in this room who you've already saved, that you've given to Jesus, your son, God, let us cling tightly to that and remember it and to repent of where we've forgotten it. And then, Lord, for those in this room and those watching online who maybe have never realized that that could be for them, God, that you will convict them, you will draw them into that relationship with you. They will see that, Jesus, you are better than everything else. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. This is what Scripture tells us in 1 Corinthians 11 concerning communion. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread... And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We get to proclaim this new covenant and this new hope today. Let's rejoice in that and worship him.